Welcome to another Griffith University podcast. Welcome everyone to another Griffith Asia Institute seminar. Um, a great pleasure to introduce uh, Professor Kimberly Hutchins from the London School of Economics, the Department of International Relations, uh, one of the most venerable institutions and in the study of international relations around, around the world, I guess. Um, Kimberly's been here for a couple of months uh, at the University of Queensland, so we're very lucky to have caught her at the, the tail end of her trip. And she's going to tell us about her, I suppose, what is her latest research. So without further ado, over to you, Kimberly. Okay, Thank you. thanks. Thanks very much, um, and thanks very much for having me here. Um, I should say, by way of sort of preface, that um, my background is very much in ethical and political philosophy. I now work in an international relations department, teach international theory, particularly normative international theory and also um, gender and feminist theory. So that's my kind of intellectual context, if you like. Um, and what I wanted to talk about today was work that I've been doing over the last few years um, on how assumptions about the temporality of politics shape the ways that people theorize world politics specifically or international politics and we can talk a bit about you know, the differences between those two terms um, if people are interested in the Q&A. Um, I wrote a book, Time and World Politics Thinking the Present, which came out in 2008 and I want to say a little bit about what was in the book because it forms the context for a more recent paper that I've been working on while I've been over here, uh, which attempts to sort of pull out one of the threads of the book, which is to do with the implications of the argument that I'm trying to make there, specifically for normative judgments about issues within international or world politics around things like humanitarianism, humanitarian intervention, global distributive justice, and all the rest of it. Um, so in a sense, it's a, it's a kind of hybrid paper. A bit of it is a potted summary of the book, and a bit of it is a potted version of the current paper. So I hope it will sort of hang together and make sense at the end of the day. Okay, this is basically then what I want to cover. So the bullet point one is the bit about the book, and the bullet point two is the current paper that I'm working on. Um, the uh, PowerPoint really is just headings to sort of um, help guide the, uh, remind me of what I'm trying to talk about. So it doesn't, it isn't uh, anything more than sort of reminders. Okay, so what do I mean by saying that assumptions about time or I think a more, a better expression is the temporality of politics are important for ways of thinking about politics in Western political thought. Within the book, I use this very old distinction between Kronos and Kairos as a way into trying to analyse how assumptions about time operate in big picture stories about the nature of world politics or international politics. Uh, very basically speaking, Kronos refers to um, everyday time natural time, if you like, which has been conceptualized in different kinds of ways over the centuries. The distinction usually is, is traced back to Greek thought, and in our own um, time mainly reflects Newtonian assumptions about the way in which time works. Kairos is, uh, in the Greek context, 
It's the time of the gods. It's exceptional time. It's time that in some sense interrupts and shapes what goes on within natural, normal, everyday time. And in looking at both canonic political theory in the book and at much more recent thinkers trying to give us big picture stories about international and world politics, I suggest there's always a particular understanding of Kronos and Kairos at work and the ways in which they intersect uh, with each other. Um, and the predominant kinds of understandings that you find tend to fall into these kind of you know, three very broad sort of shapes or categories for thinking about the time of world politics. Uh, a temporality of repetition, a temporality of progress, or a temporality of decline or apocalypse. And in the book, I sort of trace these things back and try and show how they operate and come out of various ways. Um, I can't possibly do um, justice to a proper kind of history of political thought here, so I'll just kind of put it on the table as what uh, I identified. But I think just perhaps to put a little bit of flesh on the bones, um, in terms of repetition, some familiar figures here, both from canonic international political thought, someone like Machiavelli, and of course much more familiar 20th century figures like Woolf's uh, and Mearsheimer, contemporary figures, you can see how the temporality of repetition operates within their work, something that in a sense orders the everyday time in which one day, one hour succeeds another, is ordered in this kind of repetitive cyclical pattern. You see it in Machiavelli's story of the rise and fall of power. You see it in Waltz's systemic theory in which international politics is always the same, even though the great powers may change. The pattern is always the same. What you've got is a repetition of the same thing happening. And in Mearsheimer, the, the story about the tragedy of, of world politics that he told in the book from the early 2000s, where again you get this Machiavellian pattern of the rise and fall of power. So in some sense, the sort of intersection between Kronos and Kairos there is the way in which there's a sort of linear Kronos, but what gives us a grip on international or world politics is the fact that this is effectively a repetitive dynamic. And of course, each of them has a particular story of what underlies that repetitive dynamic, what it is that, as it were, controls or shapes the time of Kronos in international or world politics. Uh, progress, again, very, very familiar, this stuff, and in many ways, of course, the most familiar trope for thinking about uh, political time. We find it, again, in classic figures, Kant, Marx, but we find it also within contemporary theories with which we're all familiar around things like liberal democratic peace, critical theories such as those of Andrew Linklater with his story about the move beyond the Westphalian system, the transformation of political community that some people will know, and even, I argue, in the um, radical Marxism of Hart Negri, whose book Empire had quite an impact when it came out in, in 2000. Uh, a different kind of understanding of the way that Kairos, as it were, and Kronos intersect and the shape of, of, of politics is formed in, in the world context, but nevertheless still that kind of a story. 
And then the third category, again, quite familiar. Obviously, you can see roots here in Christian thought specifically that's been very powerfully influential on the um, Western tradition of both political thinking and social science. We see this kind of uh, sensibility or understanding in thinkers like Rousseau, who, again, are sort of placed in the canon of international political theory. And then in more recent thinkers, I argue, uh, thinkers such as Virilio or Agamben, um, who is often are... are uh, placed as radical or new thinkers, but I suggest actually repeat a very familiar understanding, uh, particularly in the case of Virilio, who talks a lot about the acceleration of time, but within what is very clearly a neo-Christian vision of sort of approaching apocalypse. Um, in this case, again, a sort of understanding of normal time, natural time, being essentially shaped or directed uh, by a chlorotic, apocalyptic um, dynamic. Okay, so in the book, I spend a lot more time you know, explaining what all that's about, trying to justify that sort of picture, uh, rather than just sort of slapping it down, as it were. But that's all I want to say about that for the moment. The thing that I try to draw out of this, clearly there are deep contrasts between these different ways of thinking, and we can associate them with schools of thought with which we're familiar, you know, realism versus liberalism versus critical theory, or whatever you want to um, discuss. But what, what I want to suggest is that even though there are deep differences between these ways of thinking about the time of world politics, there's also certain commonalities, and this is where I think... Um, particular kinds of patterns of inclusion and exclusion happen, both within explanatory social science in international relations and within normative theorizing in international relations. And this is the ways in which I think they are similar. They all of them use the, the idea that they have of the kind of, of the temporality of world politics, of what shapes um, normal time in world politics um, as a way into presenting world politics as a unified and singular object with a particular pattern that makes it in some sense the same. They all use those ideas in order to be able to talk about the present of world politics in a way that makes sense in singular terms. So there is a present, a now, that unifies um, world politics. And when you look at the ways in which they explain that or exemplify that, it's always by reference to the experience of Western modernity or to some aspect of that experience. Uh, it might be the Westphalian system, it might be the foundation of international society, it might be bipolarity in the Cold War, it might be liberalism more broadly or capitalism more broadly. But there's always something that um, links it specifically to the experience of Western modernity as exemplifying this dynamic that shapes what world politics is and it gives us the key to understanding the present of world politics. The second thing that I find in common between these apparently very different ways of thinking about world politics is that this, this kind of grasp of the present that's enabled through these assumptions about time and temporality puts the theorist in a sort of privileged position. Uh, in some sense, to, to grasp the present, to understand the present, is also to have the capacity to control or change the future. Uh, the point of doing the theory is through 
analysing the present, to be able to, as it were, nudge world politics in the right kind of direction. So there's a sort of prophetic role, a, a role of helping history along, helping the temporality of world politics along that somehow accrues to the theorist painting these big pictures of what's happening in world politics. In other words, their judgments about world politics are timely judgments. They know what the present is. Their judgments, therefore, are appropriate to that present. They will be able to give the right kinds of suggestions for the ways in which the future should be shaped. So their judgment is timely. Okay, so that's what I think holds all of that lot together. And so I've kind of rushed over about sort of 250 pages of text or something there. Apologies for that ridiculous sort of race through. Okay, what I want to move on to now is where I kind of end up in the book with, well, what's missed out? What isn't there if we theorize the international or world politics in these kinds of ways, if we operate with these kinds of assumptions? about the way that the temporality of world politics works. Unsurprisingly, the questioning of temporal assumptions in theories of world politics has come primarily on behalf of those left out or marginalised in accounts of the world's past, present and future. Such persistently excluded or marginalised figures include indigenous peoples, aboriginals, peasants, non-Western peoples, women and children. From the point of view of post-colonial critics, the only way in which non-Western peoples are brought into the story of contemporary world politics is at best as latecomers, forced, now or in the future, to join the party, and at worst as those outside of politics altogether, subject to anthropological investigation rather than being part of what counts as the international or the world. In particular, it's been argued that historicist theories, that's the sort of middle category, the sort of Kant Marx category, which I think is the most influential, most prevalent sort of way of thinking about um, world political time, in spite of the significance of realism within the study of international relations. If you look at stories around development, around global political economy, as well as around war and peace and so on, it's actually those liberal progressive stories that are, are most powerfully. Uh, there. In particular, it's been argued that historicist theories, whether liberal or Marxist Hegelian, deny any significance to non-Western indigenous temporalities and their different accounts of the past in relation to present and future. Blaney in, and in Ayatollah in their book, um, International Relations and the Problem of Difference, point to the way in which the social sciences of international relations and international political economy occlude cultural difference by temporalizing it a move traceable back to early modernity and the simultaneous emergence of the Westphalian state system and European colonialism and forward to modernization and liberal democratic peace theories. It's a quotation from Blanian and Ayatollah. With the conversion of space into time, the constructed temporal backwardness of the savages is equated with the imagined temporal origins of the European self in antiquity and the spatially distinct other is thereby converted into a temporally prior self. So this very familiar thing in which someone or some culture that is geographically distant somehow also becomes temporally distant, this kind of conflation of space and time. End of quotation. The key result of this temporalizing move is that it, is that it removes any need to address the terms in which these peoples, the peoples who are marginalized, 
temporalize their own historicity. Instead, it renders the whole process of colonization and decolonization an insignificant detour in the true story of international politics. And I came to international relations quite late. My background's in philosophy. And I was just stunned by the way in which the whole story of colonialism is marginal to the main IR way of looking at the world. And I just couldn't get a grip on what that was all about. In order to understand and explain contemporary international politics, scholars of international relations turn to the narrative of Westphalia, because that is what international politics is, by definition. Actors that are not states and non-state actors that are not Western can only be bit part players in this drama of origin, even if they may grow up to play a starring role. Someone like Deepesh Chakrabarti makes a similar critique in his book Provincializing Europe of the assumptions underlying social scientific work on the nature of capitalist modernity, work which persistently conflates modernity as such with the temporality of Western political and economic development and therefore counts non-Western modernities as backward. At stake is always two related moves on the part of Western social science. Firstly, the neglect of alternative temporal framings as being relevant to understanding and explanation. So they may be objects of investigation, but not actually frameworks for thought. And secondly, the subsumption of the non-Western under an all-encompassing Western narrative of political time, so that the non-Western is either irrelevant to or explicable in terms of what really matters, which is the Western experience. Now, I'm aware that the, um, the language of Western non-Western is somewhat problematic, and it might be something we could come back and discuss at the end. So where I kind of end up in the book is that the ways that time is thought about, the ways in which the kind, the kind of Eurocentrism, but also the kind of heroic assumptions underpinning theories of international relations and world politics, mean that certain things just aren't, can only ever be an object of investigation and can never be thought about as ways of thinking about the world. But what I don't really do in the book, or what I only begin to do, is say, well, you know, what might the implications of that be? And the paper I'm working on at the moment is trying to draw out, or begin to draw out, I don't think it gets all that far, but begin to draw out the implications of it specifically for the project of normative theories of international politics, what's sometimes called international political theory or what might be called the ethics um, of international politics. So what I want to move on to now is that um, paper, uh, which kind of takes for granted all the stuff that I've just been talking about. Um, and the, the thinker that I sort of use as my reference point, uh, or two thinkers I use as my reference points in the paper, I come out of a tradition of continental philosophy that always thinks in terms of texts and thinkers. So rather than just taking the problem and doing it abstractly, I tend to engage with texts as a way of trying to get at problem. Um, so the two reference points here are, first of all, Habermas, whose work, um, both as a political philosopher and as a public intellectual, who has quite a lot to say about things like the European Union, about humanitarian intervention, distributive justice, and so on, on the one hand, and William Connolly on the other, um, with my argument being that Habermas's work, in many ways, repeats the issues that I've picked up in the time book and it's problematic for that reason when he tries to do normative theory and that uh, of international politics and that Connolly presents a potentially different way um, of doing it. So I'll now move on to say something about Habermas. 
In his essay, The Kantian Project and the Divided West, Habermas defends the ongoing, what he calls, juridification of international politics through a combination of philosophical and socio-historical argument, in which the questions of what international politics is and what it ought to be are inextricably entangled with one another. The essay begins with a historical claim. Following two world wars, this is Habermas speaking, the constitutionalization of international law has evolved along the lines prefigured by Kant, uh, toward cosmopolitan law and has assumed institutional form in international constitutions, organizations, and procedures. So he's claiming empirically that things that Kant said were going to happen um, are to some extent happening. Habermas explains this historical trend as the product of collective learning processes of a double kind. These learning processes reflect the lessons of the horrors of war, but also the lessons learned within the modern constitutional state that law properly understood rationalizes power in a normatively positive way. And it's the latter lesson that is most crucial since it demonstrates the connection in principle between law and peace, which is what he sees as having been increasingly recognized and empirically institutionalized in the 20th century. Habermas's adaptation of the Kantian project attempts to draw out the logic implicit in the idea of law. But as with Kant, goes beyond the realm of the idea by identifying signposts within empirical history, specifically the empirical history of Western modernity. As with Kant also, however, Habermas is insistent that the necessary links between law and peace may not be empirically realized within the workings of historical time, and that this therefore necessitates or makes the theorist responsible for reading history from a cosmopolitan point of view. It's by reading history from a cosmopolitan point of view that you are able to produce timely judgment, the kind of judgment that can make the right sort of difference to world politics. Habermas goes on to offer a reading of the history of international politics and successive institutionalizations of international law that point to the ways in which it accords with and the ways in which it runs counter to any cosmopolitan promise as well as cosmopolitan innovations in international law, such as the spread of international human rights law in the Cold War period or the humanitarian interventions of the 1990s, there are also counterexamples of the redundancy and manipulation of the UN and its founding principles. In addition, there's all sorts of things happening in the wider context, uh, to quote Habermas, with the emergence of a world society, chiefly as the result of the globalization of markets and communications networks. However, although he does not claim that globalization is straightforwardly progressive in its effects, nevertheless Habermas does claim that the pressures of globalization tend to strengthen the common interest of states in the rule of law, and also socialize state actors to act in ways that acknowledge mutual dependence and increasingly undermine the distinction between domestic and foreign policy. The latter effect of globalization reinforces the principled link between all law and its legitimate grounding in democratic will formation and fundamental human rights. This is exemplified for Habermas by the case of the EU, in which he sees the sort of building of this sort of post-national uh, community in happening, is happening. In this respect, globalization reinforces the previously relatively weak link between international law and the idea of world citizens, and greatly enhances the chances of the cosmopolitan logic of international law unfolding historically. For Habermas, the world historical significance of Western modernity lies in its institutionalization of practices of communicative 
rationality at the social and political level. Just as for Kant, only societies that invent the principle of right in a republican constitution can bring politics into accord with the demands of morality. So for Habermas, only those societies that embed the possibility of discursive validation of claims to truth and justice can take forward the telos imminent in communicative action. Like Kant, Habermas, having identified the ideal telos of history, recognizes that development towards that telos is not inevitable, and that one must make a distinction between what's happening empirically and, as it were, timely judgment or reading history from a cosmopolitan point of view. But like Kant also, he sees the task of the philosopher as being to further the promise of the cosmopolitan point of view, and the EU, for him, instantiates that promise. So on the one hand, the philosopher's reading of history represents a transcendental moral judgment of what ought to be the case, a kind of imperative for those dedicated to progress. On the other hand, the reading of history is presented as if it were imminent to historical development. On the one hand, progress is carried self-consciously by principles of self-reflexivity built into complex societies. And on the other, it's carried willy-nilly by processes such as globalization that intensify that complexity and carry it beyond state borders. The assumptions underlying Habermas's ethical and historical sociological claims are not the same as, as Kant's, even though he calls his project a Kantian project. Unlike Kant, he doesn't give us hierarchical views about race and sex, for instance. Nevertheless, when it comes to the reading of the present, the now of world politics, Habermas precisely echoes Kant's strategy of reading progress into the developed Western democratic states that constitute his own home for thought, his own orientation, the place that he comes from. And this inevitably inflects his reading of the relation between those kinds of states, their norms and cultures, and other kinds of states, norms and cultures. Aspirations towards a kind of vision of perpetual peace in the contemporary world, on his account, are also always orientations towards principles and values that are inscribed in some parts of the world rather than others. And those parts of the world, as it were, are more grown up than others. The ways in which different parts of the world come into communication with each other are therefore asymmetrical in their orientation towards the universal. It's a quotation from Habermas. The first, he, he uses the distinction between first, second and third worlds in a piece from the early 2000s, um, even though this is now some, somewhat an outmoded categorization, but essentially first world is liberal democratic states, second world is, is authoritarian, post-socialist states, a slightly odd category, you know, kind of catch-all category of things, and then uh, third world is uh, developing states, poor states. He says... The first world thus defines, so to speak, the meridian of a present by which the political simultaneity, the political coming together in a now, of economic and cultural non-simultaneity, being in different times, is measured. End of quotation. The idea of non-simultaneity, which Habermas uses to describe the differential socio-political realities of first, second and third world states in contemporary world politics, is clearly heavily normatively laden. To be non-simultaneous with OECD countries, that is to say backward in relation to those countries, is to be out of step with progress in history, not purely on grounds of capacity, but also on the kinds of thinking that are possible uh, within that frame. Now, this doesn't mean that liberal democratic states are always automatically right, but it means on Habermas's account that such states have special responsibilities 
which reflect their particular capacity for timeliness in an incomplete cosmopolitan condition, because these are the states that have realized, as it were, the values implicit in history. Two examples of such responsibilities to which Habermas draws attention are those of humanitarian intervention and cross-cultural dialogue. In relation to the former, Habermas is fully alive to the potential for powerful liberal democratic states in the absence of a fully constitutionalized international order to use doctrines of humanitarian intervention or responsibility to protect in order to serve their interests. Again, he's not just saying that liberal democratic states are always right in a straightforward way. Nevertheless, on his account, ultimately it's only such states that can be trusted to undertake actions such as humanitarian intervention. Because these are the only states that have, as it were, subjectively internalized an orientation towards the universal end of history. And something similar applies to cross-cultural dialogue. Again, Habermas is fully sensible to the dangers of Western cultural imperialism. He's obviously genuinely committed to the idea of cross-cultural dialogue. But he's also convinced that the orientation of the global world historical present remains, and I quote, the essentially unchanging horizon of social modernity and the associated normative self-understanding which developed after the end of the 18th century. And he doesn't mean developed in China after the end of the 18th century, he means developed in Europe after the end of the 18th century. And until such time as the rest of the world catches up, Habermas is also clear that it's only within Western culture that the resources can be found for resisting Western cultural imperialism. Again, I quote, Overcoming Eurocentrism demands that the West make proper use of its own cognitive resources. End of quote. However much Western cultures and politics may have failed to live up to the ideal inherent in uh, the cosmopolitan point of view, it's nevertheless within such cultures and politics that the potential to actualize this cosmopolitan point of view has been enabled and nurtured. The normative self-understanding of others either fails the test of communicative reason or somehow just testifies to the fact that these peoples have caught up with where the West already was. So the kind of travelling involved in mutual perspective-taking, which is what Habermas sees as the way to sort of come up with appropriate ethical judgments about the world, the kind of travelling involved in mutual perspective-taking is very different depending on where you start from. Whereas the Eurocentric Westerner overcomes his Eurocentrism by, as it were, coming home, by fulfilling the potential within his or her own place. The traditionalist third worlder, or the chauvinistic second worlder, and I'm drawing on Habermas's distinctions here, overcomes his or her traditionalism or chauvinism by, as it were, travelling westward. The kind of conversation between different value systems that Habermas envisages in spite of its overt insistence on respect for non-Western cultures, remains asymmetrical in much the same way as Kant's implied conversation in his much earlier work between enlightened and non-enlightened peoples. Precisely because moral equality is taken as foundational and the moral point of view is fused with the present of liberal democracy, the spatio-temporal other is identified at worst with guilt, but most often with immaturity. Uh, but these are the two vocabularies that are available. Either these people have just got it wrong, they are in some sense wicked um, or nasty, or they're just not grown up yet, they're not yet fully educated, so they're immature. And it's the latter that is most often the vocabulary that comes to the fore. Right, so that's a kind of potted version of the Habermas. It seems to me that almost all ethical theorising about world politics exhibits this kind of 
set of assumptions that makes uh, any kind of engagement um, asymmetrical uh, fundamentally. So how might we do things differently? Um, and this is where it all gets a bit speculative, but I'm trying to draw on the work of William Connolly um, to see uh, if he may provide a way of looking at things differently. And again, this is very kind of condensed, so apologies if it's a little bit obscure. Okay, as with Kant and Habermas, Connolly rejects the idea that there can be some kind of thinking from nowhere. Um, yeah, Kant and Habermas both say you, know, you can't just somehow detach yourself from history and that's one of the reasons why they locate, as it were, progress within their own time, a way of thinking about their own time and place. And so Kant and Habermas also, he's committed to progressive engagement with transnational and global ethical and political issues. In contrast to Kant and Habermas, however, Connolly is unconvinced by a reading of world political time that identifies the moral universal with the time and space of Western modernity through a kind of as-if historicism or philosophical history. In place of the philosophical moves that synthesize world history into a singular linear story with a singular past, present, and future, Connolly proposes a radically different way of thinking about the temporality of world politics and therefore also the spatio-temporal orientation of the normative theorist of world politics, the person who's trying to think about world politics. Connolly's ethical and political theory is oriented in time that is plural rather than singular and unpredictable rather than linear. And he um, develops this account of time first in his book Neuropolitics and King Culture Speed, which some of you may know, where he characterizes the time of thinking as a kind of out-of-joint emergence and coming together of a range of pasts, of virtual pasts, in relation to an ongoing present which yields unpredictable futures. Connolly argues that the asymmetries in the temporality of thinking, which perpetually destabilize and transform the temporal organization of past, presents, and futures, just for us as individuals, have their parallel in the experience of out-of-jointness and plurality between different public political temporalities, ways in which people think about the time of their social public political life as opposed to our kind of um, personal phenomenological experience of time. From Connolly's point of view, Kantian cosmopolitan theories of world politics, such as Habermas's, remain within the temporal register of what he calls a politics of being, and have been unable to do justice to either plurality or unpredictability in their diagnoses of the times. For Connolly, such theorists in their evaluation of the promise of the world political present, what's progressive about it, what's regressive about it, and so on, are caught up in what he calls a concentric understanding of culture, in which a particular parochial temporality is treated as if it can generate the force that will bind increasingly distant circles of humanity together. Uh, Connolly suggests this is something that happens a lot in both cosmopolitan and anti-cosmopolitan theories of world politics. He argues that presentness is always constituted by a plurality of presents inscribed in diverse imminent temporalities. And he rejects the idea that any unifying temporal orientation provides the master key to the meaning of what now means in world politics. His reading of political time is simultaneously a critique of the concentric orientation and thinking that dominates a lot of cosmopolitanisms. And, he argues, the basis for a different mode of orientation for thought. In a comment on some recent interpretations of his work, Connolly attempts to kind of articulate a bit more what, what, what's meant by this kind of plural orientation 
for ethical and political thought in an era of globalisation. He describes this orientation as a risky endeavour, a matter of keeping your place while at the same time being open to your own displacement, simultaneously centred and decentered. Now, there's a marked contrast between Connolly's account of what follows from his pluralised orientation for thought and Habermas's account of the responsibilities of cross-cultural dialogue in cosmopolitan times. For Habermas, ethical engagement with other non-simultaneous cultures and mentalities is enabled through him, Habermas, living up to the reason inherent in his own time. The aspiration of mutual perspective-taking is taken to be inherent in the resources for thought opened up as well as closed down by Western modernity. But this means that the perspectives taken by the parties to communicative engagement place the interlocutors not just differently but also hierarchically. To live up to the best inscribed in your own presence and which you know to be the direction in which history should be treated as travelling is different than to be obliged to overcome your present in order to live up to a putative alien future. It's not that the Western theorist cannot be wrong or guilty, but to the extent that he or she is mistaken or wicked, it is because he or she fails to live up to his or her own standards. To be punished or corrected is to come home, not to be expelled from home. On this account, effective disturbance at the level of who you are as opposed to what you do is confined to the interlocutors of the Western theorists, who in their guilt or backwardness live the painful dislocation of their own non-presentness with Western political time. In contrast to Connolly, the theorist is open to the theorist himself or herself is open to effective disturbance, as open as the people he's trying to talk to and with. To work with a pluralized non-linear temporal orientation is not simply to work with the acknowledgement that you may be wrong, but to lay yourself open to the pain of being temporarily morally out of joint, of becoming the equivalent of either the uneducated or the wicked. Of course that raises the question of, okay, well, that all sounds um, interesting, perhaps a bit bizarre, but in what sense does it give us a starting point for trying to think about ethical um, and political judgment? Are we simply undermining the possibility of saying anything concrete if we try to, as it were, operationalise this pluralised understanding of time rather than doing the sort of economical thing of, of, of reducing um, the present? Okay, so in the concluding reflections, which is just a page and a half, so I think I can get through that, um, I try to suggest how starting from this plural viewpoint might actually give us a different kind of starting point. It might just suggest certain practical things that you might do when you're trying to think about applied judgments of what to do in relation to world politics. And I pick up here on the issue of humanitarian intervention specifically. Habermas is only one of a number of theorists who see humanitarian intervention as embodying the moral ethos of modernity and signifying the radical potential of our particular world political present. You know, one of the good things that's come out of the post-Cold War is that we've been able to do these humanitarian interventions. A heterotemporal or plural orientation to theorising uh, cosmopolitan time. I have suggested, dissenters the position of the critic by questioning the assumption of the fusion between his or her particular present and the present of world politics. It raises the question, if you start from the plural um, end, the Connolly end as opposed to the Habermas end, as to why humanitarianism should be taken as a sign of the distinctiveness of world political present, for whom and from whose perspective is this a novel development? Does it mark a normative difference in the conduct of world politics or simply confirm a set of long-standing patterns? 
To raise the question of novelty, and there's a lot of huge literature on humanitarian intervention in the 90s, which simply treats, you know, this is new, this was settled time, this is new. But if we question that idea of novelty, it actually disturbs the kind of subjective certainty of, of at-homeness in thought that renders such phenomena as humanitarian intervention straightforwardly timely, in some sense in keeping with the time. In this respect, a heterotemporal orientation makes the work of the theorist much harder, since it requires the painful political effort of cross-temporal engagement without the shortcuts enabled by a taken-for-granted fusion of your own particular present with some kind of putative end of history. In only ever being partially at home, heterotemporally oriented normative judgment partakes of the partiality and revisability of the presence to which it is imminent. If someone wants to claim that humanitarian intervention is, um, can be identified with the potential globalization of justice, then a heterotemporal orientation, a plural orientation, would suggest that what is needed is to begin by acknowledging and examining political temporalities of violation in order to understand the meaning of injustice in the present. This would enable judgment of the likely effects of the institutionalization of particular normative priorities and principles and practices of international human humanitarianism. It would also open up the question of what kinds of violation matter and why, and offer a different route to the establishment of international hierarchies of outrage than the one that's currently taken for granted. And I'm thinking in quite straightforward terms here. It's quite clear that the whole discourse of humanitarian intervention reflects very specific historical experiences of what are the ultimate outrages. It reflects, in particular, uh, the experience of the Second World War and the Holocaust, and certain assumptions of where the greatest wrongs in world politics have happened, which are part of a history, but not of everybody's history in the same way. If you take the plural temporal approach, then you start to think, okay, in terms of the kinds of temporalities of, of violation or the understandings of histories of violation in places that you're going to intervene into, what are the, you know, the things that should never be done? Are they the same as the things that we think should never be done? Now, if they are, fine, but it's something you need to find out rather than necessarily assume in advance. So I suppose that's where I'm ending at the moment, and I know it's very crude, and it's a starting point, but what I'm hoping to do is to try to take this forward to unravel more specific implications for really thinking about ethical issues in world politics such as military humanitarian intervention, um, aid and trade development, all those kinds of things. So trying to take it more into the realm of applied ethics. But I'm only at the start, starting point of that at the moment. Thanks very much, Kim. For more Griffith University podcasts, go to www.griffith.edu.au forward slash podcasts.